Out of all the stories in the Old Testament, maybe this one God gives us the most details. And I can hardly do the entire story justice at one sitting here. So my aim this morning is not to tell you the whole story of Joseph in Egypt. You should read Genesis 39 to 50 on your own time. Wonderful story, full of amazing irony and plot twists. and uh, It's just a beautiful thing. So, if you've never heard the story, spoiler alert, I'm giving you the highlights, and sorry, but our aim, though, is to point to something larger than the individual parts of the story, and again, look at the meta-narrative. How does the story of Joseph fit in God's grand plan of redemption? And God uses this story to answer a very important question that all people have, which is, why is there evil in the world, and what is God going to do about it? Theologians phrase this question as the problem of evil. It's a complicated topic that, again, we couldn't do justice to in 40 minutes, but God's going to give us an answer by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis. But let me give us a little recap. How did we get to where we are? The Bible begins by telling us God, the uncreated one, created everything, the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman in the image of God for the purpose of glorifying God by filling the earth through marriage and having dominion according to God's sovereign will and God's commands. And that is what you are doing as Christians. You're filling the earth, having dominion, using your gifts and your talents to the glory of God, to make societies, businesses, make discoveries, inventions, live life, enjoy life, look at all that God's created and create art and poetry and music to glorify God. Even the games we play can glorify God. The sports we enjoy, the recreation, God said to rest on the seventh day. All this can bring glory to God as long as we continue to acknowledge that God is sovereign and He is Lord and He created everything and He created us in His image for a purpose. Yet we see by the third chapter of Genesis, man, the first man and woman, rebel against God's sovereignty, wanting to determine for themselves how to define reality, morality, and even their own purpose in the world. And in light of Friday's rulings, I want to show you that it's just an echo of Genesis 3. It's all that happened on Friday. It's the same scene in the garden playing out over and over and over again. Here's a direct quote from Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion Friday. By the way, for those of you who think politics is the solution to all that ails us, if we just get the right people in office, that'll fix everything. Anthony Kennedy was appointed by Ronald Reagan. So conservatives thought they had the right guy in office and thought he appointed the right guy to the bench. But you never know. You never know. Only the regenerate heart 
that accepts God's word as truth can give us confidence. And so we preach the gospel when we preach God's word. Amen? Justice Kennedy said back in 1992 in a decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Direct quote. Never before really had a Supreme Court justice mentioned, uttered such words. And in the decision on Friday, he piggybacked off of his own words as precedent for coming to the conclusions that the majority came to. Let's pick this apart. He is saying that true liberty includes the right to redefine where our liberty comes from. What's the preamble to the Declaration of Independence say? That our Creator has endowed us with certain un or inalienable rights. Inalienable. Unable to be changed. Or they're alien. They're outside of us. We didn't give ourselves these rights. Our Creator endowed us with these rights. The rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so... Anthony Kennedy goes on to say that that liberty that God's given us the right to includes the liberty to decide there is no God. Now, what happens to your liberty to, dis- to redefine reality if you take away God? You're going to lose your liberty. That's the grand irony of Genesis 3. Man, God created man in His image. God created this universe without the universe... We would have nowhere to exist. If He didn't create us, we wouldn't exist. He's given us a mind that can think and reason, that can hypothesize and test and come to conclusions. And at the end of the day, man takes that gift God's given him and says, yeah, I don't think there's really a God. Or, I think I could have created better than God. It's the height of arrogance For God to create us with the ability to think and then for us to turn around and say, I think I could think better than you. If God didn't create us with that ability, we wouldn't be doing any thinking at all. And yet that is what happened on Friday. The four dissenting judges said, you have opened Pandora's box now. There's nothing stopping anyone from coming forward and saying, I want to redefine reality. I want to redefine marriage as three men and two women. Three men, two women, and a dog and a cat. And they said, well, now you're just being mean. No, we're not. This is the logical conclusion to redefining our reality. They didn't say dog and cat. They said polygamy and polyamorous relationships. Polygamy, multiple spouses, polyamorous, you know, three women, two men in a marriage or any combination thereof. And we talked last week about how we're seeing evidence of this all throughout our culture now. People saying, I'm not the race I was born. I will, I will decide for myself what race I am. I will decide for myself what gender I am. It's only a matter of time before somebody decides for themselves what species they are. You laugh, but you know it's coming. And so, 
we cannot cave into the pressure of our culture. The best thing we can do for our culture is to stand on the Word of God. A, because we want to honor God who loved us, created us, and saved us. But B, because we know to do other would lead to mass absurdity, confusion, and society would ultimately implode. We cannot create a healthy society if everybody's going to define for themselves reality and morality and purpose. All people are born into sin and need a Savior. And when I say born into sin, it's this very propensity, this inclination to decide for yourself what God has already decided. We inherited that from from Adam. And we've been saying that each person is born with a unique genetic makeup, which we like to call nature, and born into unique circumstances, which we like to call nurture. And without God in the equation, people believe that they are forced to act and think according to their nature and nurture. I couldn't help it. I was just born this way. I couldn't help it. It's the way my parents raised me. And yet God reveals to us that He expects us to not blame our nature and nurture, but instead to pursue righteousness according to God's revelation. And God is working out His sovereign plan of redemption that He launched in Genesis 3.15 through our nature and nurture. This is called God's providence, and it's an amazing thing, an amazing thing that we should praise God for. His amazing providence, how He carries out His plans through human choices. So here's the problem of evil. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, man's ultimate problem is that he wants the right to judge God instead of accepting God's definitions of reality, morality, and purpose. Okay, you catch that? So God told Adam and Eve, here's who you are, you're created in my image, here's your purpose, tend the garden, have dominion, Here's the definition of marriage, one man, one woman, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. You can have everything, and it's all good, God said, after each day of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then after he creates woman and institutes marriage, he says, now it's very good. You can have everything, just not that one tree, which represented the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, the reality is that death will ensue. You will usher evil into the world, and the wages of sin is death. Death being the ultimate evil. It doesn't get much worse after death, right? Though it was man's fault that evil entered the world... Man turns around and holds God responsible for the evil. So when you're out witnessing and, and people say, well, how can I worship this God who lets all this evil, suffering, famine, natural disasters, 
as if it were God's fault all of that is in the world. That was man's fault. And so the world says, if, if there really is this all-powerful God and he's all good, then why is there evil in the world? Sitting in judgment over God. Well, if he really was all-powerful, he would do something about all this evil. And if he really was all, all good, he, he couldn't just sit around and watch all this evil transpire in front of him. So either he's not all-powerful or he's not all-good. Unless there's a reason and a purpose for evil in the world that God is allowing. Those of you who went through Pastor Andy's study through Tim Keller's book on suffering, he was teaching that the rest of the world doesn't see any point in suffering, that no good can come from that kind of evil. Because we live in a hedonistic society that says, Everything must be about happiness and pleasure. So how could there be any good from, from evil? We're going to briefly look at Joseph's life, and when we get to the end of the book of Genesis, God is going to give us his answer to the problem of evil. But what I want you to see in Joseph's life is the possibility of overcoming one's nature and nurture. Overcoming your nature in nurture. We've seen all these patriarchs and all these characters kind of give in to their nature and nurture. But in Joseph, we're going to see the possibility of yielding to God's sovereignty in your life. Genesis 39.1, remember Joseph got thrown in the pit by his brothers. While he's down there in the pits, the Midianites pulled him out. He was sold into slavery. They sold him to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard in Egypt. I'm assuming that while he was in the pit, Joseph did some thinking, wouldn't you? How could my brothers do this to me? God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Or maybe he started doing this kind of thinking. Why would my brothers hate me so much? What did I ever do to them? You know, when, when one person's angry at you, it's easy to say, well, it's their fault. But when 11 of your own flesh and blood gang up on you, maybe it's time to start thinking, well, how did I contribute to my own demise? It takes a pretty brash, self-righteous person to say, all 11 were wrong. I was right. I don't deserve this. Maybe he came to his senses like the prodigal son did when he was in a pit of his own, the pigsty, and said, maybe telling my 11 brothers I'm better than you and dad loves me the most and wearing a special coat all the time and telling them dreams about how someday all of you will bow down to me isn't the best way to win friends and influence people. Although all of that was something that Joseph inherited through nature and nurture he didn't choose. It's not his fault he was given special administrative talents by God. It's not his fault his dad favored him over the rest of his brothers. It's not his fault he was given a special coat. 
And he could very easily lean on that as, I'm the victim here. But I think you're going to see in his life that he takes a different tact, a different attitude. Verse 2, very important. The Lord was with Joseph. Beloved, the Lord is with you. It's up to you to acknowledge whether or not He's there with you. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you or abandoned you. The more you realize the Lord is with you and guiding your steps, the better able you are to interpret the world around you and the circumstances in which you find yourself. You start acting like an unbeliever, life will get confusing. So he became a successful man. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Beloved, you live a compelling life of obedience to the Lord and reap the blessing of obedience, the world is going to take notice and they're going to wonder what makes the difference in your life. Maybe God will bless you with great financial prosperity and you give glory to God. Or maybe God will bless you in a different way with a difficult illness. Well, how could that be a blessing? Well, you can demonstrate to the world the way a Christian suffers, much different than the way an unbeliever suffers. And they will say, well, what is the difference? And they will see that our faith in our God is what makes all the difference. So Joseph found favor in, the, in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Remember, God made covenant with Abraham, which was passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob, passed down to Joseph now, that I will bless those who bless you. And through you I will be a blessing to all the nations. Here is the nation Egypt, a pagan nation, a, a house in the nation of Egypt, benefiting from God's covenant with Abraham. Potiphar didn't do anything to deserve this blessing. He's reaping residuals off of Joseph. Now, Potiphar goes out on business and leaves Joseph in charge of everything in his house. And while he's gone, Potiphar's wife makes inappropriate advances. And I'm putting it mildly for our young people in the room. And Joseph refuses. I'm skipping down to verse 8. He says, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you. 
because you are his wife. Now, Joseph has a very similar decision as Adam did in the garden. Look, I have everything. Everything. There's just one thing I can't have. And he could have justified it in the same way Adam did. Well, look, I do all this work for my master, and I toil for him, and why shouldn't I get to reap the rewards? He could actually have said no to Potiphar's wife from pragmatic, from a pragmatic, practical standpoint. He could have said, wow, I've got such a great life. Why would I want to jeopardize all that? Instead, he says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Beloved, this ought to be our answer when we are tempted to sin. Even in those quiet moments when nobody's around and nobody is ever going to find out. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? He could have been tempted to say, what's the point in following God? I get thrown in a pit, I get sold into slavery, and now my master's wife's making these advances at me, she's going to get me fired or killed. I'm not worshiping this God. But he continues his steadfast faith in God. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph appealed to the the highest authority. That's what we're called to do. He could have even blamed his nature and nurture. I can't help it if I'm so handsome. It says in that same passage, now Joseph was handsome of form and face. He He was a stud. I can't help it. Or he could have said, what was I supposed to do? She threw herself at me. He could have appealed to his nature and nurture, and yet God is saying, no, in spite of your nature and nurture, you do the right thing. Your nature and nurture never needs to be an excuse for you to sin. Yes, we understand your nature and nurture, and my nature and nurture makes it difficult for me to obey at times. But not impossible. Especially for us, on this side of the cross, we have more revelation available to us than Joseph had. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. If Joseph could pull this off, Even more so, New Testament believers should be able to say, how could I do this great evil and sin against my God? He died for me. How could I I do this? How could I trample on the blood of Jesus? So Joseph's master, he comes home. What ends up happening is he tries to run out of the house. She grabs his coat. Coat's really important in his life, right? It kind of keeps coming up. It says, look, that Hebrew, he tried to force himself on me, and I have the coat to prove it. And when my husband gets home, you're in big trouble. And she says to all the other servants in the house, 
My husband brought this Hebrew in to mock all of us. Now, I believe that Potiphar knew his wife was probably lying. Because if she was telling the truth and he believed she was telling the truth, he had the right to execute Joseph on the spot. And instead, he sends him to jail. And I even get the impression, I'm using my sanctified imagination here, that he tells the jailer, hey, this guy is really good at administrative tasks. Because we find out that the chief jailer puts Joseph in charge of everything. I don't work out at the prison, but a lot of the men here do. I wonder if there are guys out there that have great administrative skills that they give a lot of their tasks to. I don't know, but... It says that the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So he's in jail, and he's using his gifts to the glory of God. Beloved, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. We didn't ask for the culture to change, but it has and there's really nowhere left to run. Tehachapi's as far away as you can run. And it's coming. Either you go to the mission field, or the mission field is going to come to us. You can run like Jonah, but God will swallow you up and spit you back out into the mission field. Do you, live, do you work in a pagan environment? Then work to the glory of God as unto the Lord and give glory to God as He prospers your work. Young people, do you go to a school where you're surrounded by secular humanism, pagan unbelief? Don't give in to the culture. Live to the glory of God, and God will prosper all that you do, and you can point people to God. While he's in jail... A couple other guys in jail start having dreams, and Joseph gives them the interpretation of their dreams. And he says to one of them, Hey, when you get on the outside, remember me and put in a good word for me. But they, they don't. Until about three years later, Pharaoh begins having dreams. And one of the guys who was in jail says, hey, I remember a guy in jail, a Hebrew, who's really good at interpreting dreams. But look at what I've underlined here. All along, Joseph continues to give glory to God and acknowledge God in his life. Do not interpretations belong to God. And when they bring him to Pharaoh, he says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Always deflecting glory to God. Yes, God is giving me these abilities and these skills, but I think he learned in his childhood not to parade himself around and take credit for his great position his father gave him in the family and for his special administrative skills. As Paul says, what do any of us have that wasn't first given to us 
by God. Humility doesn't mean, oh, no, no, I'm not really that good at anything. If you're good at something and it's obvious, give glory to God. He gave you that skill, not to spend on yourself, but to glorify Him by having dominion in the earth, using the skills God's given you to bring glory to God. So, Joseph, I'm getting the impression the guy was the total package, you know. He was good-looking, he was athletic, he was a leader of men, he could solve problems, he had great people skills, he could interpret dreams. And yet, Pharaoh didn't feel threatened by all this because of his humility to God. He ends up putting him in charge of all of Egypt. Remember what was the dream, that there'd be seven years of famine and then, sorry, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Joseph interprets the dream with God's help and he says we really should store up in the seven years of plenty. And Pharaoh says, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Right? So you might as well be in charge of the storing up for the seven years. This guy's better than all than anyone else in Egypt. Who cares if he's a Hebrew? He's got God on his side. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall pay homage, do homage. Only, though, in the throne I will be greater than you. I I love this line. I underline it because I think this is humanity in a nutshell. Hey, that Christian God's amazing, and yeah, keep building hospitals and schools and do all that good and bring some morality to our culture, but we don't want your God on our throne. That's my place. And beloved, you and I still have a propensity to do this. We love God. We love that He saved us. And for the most part, we love Him being our Lord, but we all have those places where we still struggle with idolatry, where in our heart of hearts we end up saying, only in the throne I will be greater than you. This is why we need God's constant forgiveness. Yes, He's justified us completely. We are fit for heaven in Christ, but in our sanctification... We're constantly ripping idols off the throne of our heart, and then we put them right back on there. But praise God, we are growing in grace, and you should see a pattern in your life that the idols are staying off the throne for longer and longer periods of time, and you're getting better at recognizing when they're on there and repenting of that. Someday when we're glorified in heaven, no more idolatry, no more sin. We'll see God face to face. And we won't be tempted to put idols there. Why would we? Look, look who we have. Nothing can compare to our great God. While Joseph is in Egypt, he, he marries an Egyptian woman, woman and has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he names Manasseh recognizing that God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. So he's able to let go of of that bitterness. And he's got this beautiful child, and he's married, and he's enjoying the blessings of life, albeit in a foreign land. But he's able to praise God. Different than how we saw other patriarchal characters name their children, right? Right? 
still hanging on to bitterness, some of the other patriarchs. But Joseph giving glory to God. And then his second son, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Naming a son in such a way to glorify God. Thank you for making lemonade out of lemons in my life, God. He has a great outlook on life. Beloved, we're finding ourselves living in Egypt. Let's be honest. This isn't a Christian culture anymore. We had a good run, right? Now you're really going to have to be intentional about your faith. You can't just swim with the flow of culture and be Christianish. Your faith and my faith is going to be put to the test. It's going to cost us something to be Christians. Right now it's just costing us acceptance in the eyes of the public, but it, the cost will get more expensive. It might cost you a job. We might lose our 5013C status, so we'll have to pay more taxes. They'll hit us in our pocketbooks first. Eventually, as history is our guide, there's imprisonment and then martyrdom. I'm hoping Jesus comes back before my children and grandchildren have to experience that. Amen. Amen. In Genesis 42 to 44, Joseph's brothers have to go to Egypt to buy food from the Egyptians because the famine hits and they hear there's food in Egypt. See, now I'm going to spoil the story for you, but Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. They think he's dead. So he, he, he could get his revenge. And they unwittingly fulfill the prophetic dreams as they bow down before their brother. They have to bow down because he has all the authority in Egypt. So the very dream that provoked them to throw their brother in the pit, they are now fulfilling. English teachers call that dramatic irony, right? God writes a good story, does he not? Joseph devises a plot to see if his brothers have been kind to Benjamin. He's thinking, well, if they killed me, maybe they killed Benjamin, Rachel's other son. They had all gone to get food, but they didn't bring Benjamin with them because Jacob said, don't take Benjamin. He's all I got left. Gosh, how would you like to hear that from your dad? What am I, chopped liver? Pretty much. You guys go. You risk life and limb, but leave Benjamin here. Son of my sorrow, Benjamin. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and it's a big emotional scene. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Whom you sold into Egypt. You did this to me. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on to say, God, uh, for the famine has been in the land for these two years and there are still five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. He's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. 
He's not going to let Abraham's line get wiped out by famine. Yeah, he could have just dropped food from heaven to feed them, or just had a personal rain cloud rain over their crops. But this is way more impressive, is it not? The world's always saying, well, if God will do some great miracle, then I'll believe in him. Look at this. This is amazing stuff. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wait a minute, he just got through saying, you sold me here. So, who did it? His brothers or God? Yes. Good, yes. Well, pastor, unravel that for us. No. God doesn't want us to unravel the mystery of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. They go together, hand in hand. It's a great mystery of the faith. Believe it. Trust it by faith. It's real. It's the way God works, and it's amazing. Our God is so great. So if God did this, then is it God's fault the evil the brothers committed? No, beloved, no. God's never to be blamed for our evil. So yes, God is sovereign and He's working and He elects and He chooses, but He is never to take the blame for our evil. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph sends his brothers back home to bring dad, and that's a big, wonderful scene where dad gets to see his son that he thought was dead. See, I'm ruining the story for you. I mean, that is just... If it was a movie, that would be the climax of, of the movie. Lots of tears. I can pick out which actors should play which parts. He brings the whole family to live in Egypt. Pharaoh says, your whole family can come. They can live in Goshen. They can be cattle farmers because Egyptians don't raise cattle. It's blasphemous for them to do that. So you get your own land and I'll protect you so you can prosper as a family. While they're there, Jacob's about to die and he's blind now. More dramatic irony. Now Jacob's blind, and he has to give the blessing. And Joseph brings his two sons for the blessing. And he puts his dad's hand, his right hand on his older son's head, Manasseh, and his left hand on his younger son's head, Ephraim, because the older son should get the better blessing. The right hand's the better blessing. And Jacob switches hands and gives the better blessing to the younger son. And Joseph's like, Dad, what are you doing? You're making a mistake. And Jacob says, no, this is God's will. The younger son will be stronger than the older, just like Esau and Jacob. And indeed, Ephraim becomes such a powerful tribe in the future that the northern ten tribes in Israel become named Ephraim. Ephraim becomes synonymous with the northern ten tribes. The southern two tribes in Israel are dominated by which son? Judah. And after Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, he blesses all the rest of his sons, and he gives Judah the best blessing. And you can read about that in Genesis uh, 49 
8 through 10. It's up on the screen, but in essence, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Who is Shiloh? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes through the line of Judah. In fact, he's called the Lion of Judah. Now, Jacob dies. They bury their father. And now the brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to get his retribution. Dad's gone now. He's not going to hold back his wrath from us. So they send a messenger to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. So they're reminding him, Dad said you need to forgive us. And so they say, And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Interesting that they invoke the name of their father. Hey, this is the God of our, your father. This is the God of your father who's commanding you to do this. I don't know if this is godly repentance or not. Although fear of God's eternal punishment is a great reason for repenting, not just the, I get to be with God forever in heaven, it's both, right? And when you witness, it's both. Warn people of the judgment to come and then woo them with the kindness of the Lord's love. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him a second time, fulfilling again the prophetic dreams. And he says, they say, behold, we are your servants. And here's God's answer then to the problem of evil. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Finally, somebody's asking the right question. Remember, we said that the essence of the fallen of man is that man said, I want to be in God's place. I want to determine my own reality, my own future, my own identity, my own purpose. Here's Joseph saying, am I in God's place? Is it my place to judge you? Is it my place to not forgive? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The clearest teachings in the Bible that God uses evil to accomplish His good plans. Though not the author of evil, we commit the evil, God can even use our evil to accomplish the good plans that he has sovereignly ordained. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So the world is saying, what is God going to do about evil? All this evil in the world. And the irony is that man caused the very evil we now want God to do something about. All this suffering and death, God. How could you let this happen? Wait a minute. He said if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The wages of sin is death. Death is in the world because you and I sin. And then we hold God responsible for the consequences. Now, 
And God could tell us, look, you made your bed, you sleep in it. You brought death into the world. Good luck with that. I'm done. No, that's not what he says. The very evil man caused, God uses it for good, and the ultimate evil man committed was killing the Son of God on the cross. And God used that very evil to forgive us for committing evil. What is God going to do about evil? He's going to use our evil for good, the ultimate good that Jesus took the payment for evil on himself and lived the perfect life of righteousness in our place. The world wants God to just undo the law. Can you just get rid of the consequences of our sin? Just get rid of all the suffering and all the evil? And then we can just go on sinning and have a good time? No, God can't do that because then He wouldn't be just. But if He was just, we'd all be doomed without His mercy. And on the cross, God's justice and mercy are perfectly married together. What is God's answer to the problem of evil? Jesus Christ. That is the message you need to take with you today, into your own homes, into your own hearts, in your workplaces, and not despair over Friday's ruling. Five mere mortals in black robes cannot define reality for us. Grieve for them, pray for them, but you continue to be like Joseph. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God will bring good out of Friday's decision. You can count on it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are God and on the throne and you are forgiving for us cosmic treason, treasoners, trying to usurp your authority on the throne. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. And we know you have because you sent your Son to die for us. Thank you that you have done something about evil. And ultimately, Lord, we trust, as your word tells us, that all evil will be eradicated and we will enjoy glory in heaven, perfection in new heavens and new earth for all eternity. May that strengthen our hearts and may we be bold to speak truth and love and proclaim this great message to a world who doesn't want to hear it, but we trust, God, that for those you've called, you will change their hearts and they will embrace this message like we have. In Jesus' name, amen.